Hello, and welcome to I Am Dad podcast with your fatherhood authority, Kenneth Braswell. 30 minutes of wisdom, information, resources, and nuggets to help you on your fatherhood journey. Or maybe you're just curious and want to hear some real talk about fatherhood, family, and the minds of men. Well, guess what? We got you too. Sit back, grab your pad and pen, and maybe even bring a little something to sip on. Enjoy 30 straight minutes of fatherhood, family, and fun with the fatherhood authority. Kenneth Braswell. Welcome to I Am Dad Podcast. I'm your host, Kenneth Braswell. Thank you once again for joining joining us on a Sunday morning um, as we continue to bring you the best and responsible fatherhood conversation with experts, um, insight, provocative thought, um, opinions, um, and research, and you name it. I'm trying to bring it all to you so that we can really round out this conversation. I've been also kind of thinking about bringing in different subject matters as I listen to dads and see emails and texts and DMs that come to me about you should talk about this, you should talk about that. So I'm trying to respond to those as well. And in doing that, bringing in great people that I've been involved with for really 20, 30 years, some of them 10 years, some of them, some of them more recent. Um, and this individual is no different in that space. He is Chris Broussard. Um, he is an internationally known sports analyst and commentator for the Fox Sports One television network and Fox Sports Radio. Today, he serves as the daily co-host of First Things First on FS1 and can also be seen regularly on FS1's Undisputed, The Herd, and Lock It In. He also serves as the co-host, along with Rob Parker, of one of the country's most popular daily national radio shows, The Odd Couple. Before joining Fox Sports in the fall of 2016, Chris worked for 12 years as an NBA analyst and reporter at ESPN, ESPN The Magazine, and ESPN.com. Chris wrote for the New York Times from 1998 to 2004 and graduated from Oberlin College. He is also the founder and president of the National Christian Men's Organization called the King Movement. King stands for knowledge, inspiration, and nurture through God and seeks to help boys and men reach their God-given potential in every realm of their life. He's happily married for more than 25 years. He's got twin daughters and he lives with his wife, Dr. Crystal Bouchard, in New Jersey. Hey, sir, how you doing? I'm great, man. How are you? I'm doing fine. You know, I was uh, thinking about when we met and I was like, man, I, I said the first time I saw him was at this event in Queens um, and we were getting an award for something. I can't remember. And you had to leave um, Earl. I think you had to leave. And, and somehow you and I was talking and you asked me to grab scoop up your award. and You had to leave. I don't know if you remember that. Well, and, I remember it was and didn't I give a keynote speech? Yes. International mm -hmm. Men's Day, I think it was. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. You had to leave and, and we were talking and you said, can I scoop it up for me? And I was like, sure. Then I was thinking about it. I was like, <laughs> man, that was Chris Bouchard. He told me to scoop up his. <laughs> so, <laughs> it just was something that was like resonating in my head. <laughs> and I was kind of thinking that you and I have now that was over 10 years ago. And so. Yeah. That's a long, long time um, to be in the same space um, in this work. And so how is your family? That's Let's start there. I'm always um, new and good news, new and good with your family. Yeah, man, everything is going great. Uh, you mentioned the things I'm doing with my career. Uh, my wife is a medical doctor. She's a gastroenterologist and she's doing well. She actually was featured in a book. Within the past year, year and a half, it came out. Within the past year, it was, I think it's called I Am Doctor, but it's mm. about black female doctors. Okay. And um, it is, uh, they feature like 40 female, black female doctors, photos and their story and all that. So, um, so she's doing really well. My daughters, I have twin daughters um, that are 24 years old now. And they both graduated from college, uh, graduated in 2020 during the pandemic. And one now who graduated from Michigan, she works at BET, 
in content coordination. Mm-hmm. And the other one who graduated from the University of Pennsylvania, she's now doing research in the psychology department at Yale. So they're both doing well. They're out of the house. Um, but the good news is they're close enough where we see them every two or three weeks. So uh, so it's all good. It's all good. Yeah. My parents are actually living with me now mm-hmm. because of some health challenges, but but they're good. So uh, I'm blessed, man, for sure. Thank you so much. And, you know, and as we kind of ease into our conversation about fatherhood and then the work that you're doing um, with King, you know, last time, I think you and I were texting each other and you were telling me about specifically your dad. And I was having a conversation with someone and I said, you know, we don't talk enough about men as caretakers, um, particularly of their parents. Like we don't talk about this. And what made me think about that is I was at this meeting. Um, in LA, and there was a bunch of women organizations there and, and folks who were doing, you know, similar work around women's rights and things. And they asked me to come in and kind of talk about fathers. And one of the young ladies said, um, yeah, my, um, my mom has dementia. And she goes, and it's really, you know, something that we really have to deal with because women are really impacted, you know, by our parents in need of aftercare. And I said, um, I just want to interject here. I said, my household, uh, my mother-in-law had dementia and my wife and I took care of her for two years in our house. And I can assure you that it didn't just impact my wife. It impacted the entire house. It impacted myself. It impacted my son. It impacted our family. It impacted everywhere. I said, if we're going to have this conversation about being caretakers, we got to talk about it in the family context. Like moms are not the only ones who care for their children. And and ever since then, for some odd reason, men that are in my circle, we've been having conversations about them being caretakers. And so there's something at some point I want to lift up, particularly in the faith space, about how we cultivate our men, uh, particularly black men, to be ready um, to be caretakers and to also know that there are support mechanisms around them to help them with that. Um, And part of that is talking about it because most of those men never said that to me until I brought it up. And then they said, oh yeah, that's me. Right? Right. And so as you're walking through, you know, this now, have you given much thought um, to, uh, what life would be like for your dad in this space if he wasn't in your life and you weren't in his? You mean if, yeah, as he is now in yes. his mm-hmm. health challenges? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I I hope this doesn't come off the wrong way, but I think there's a very good chance that my father might not be alive mm. uh, in that he has cancer. And um, my mom has dementia and she's had it now for probably about five years or so. And he's been essentially taking care of her when, you know, when they, they live together, obviously as husband and wife. And so uh, the daily challenges of dealing with her fell on him, of course. And she still she has her long term memory, thankfully, so she can still remember everybody and events and have an intelligent conversation. But her short term memory is gone. Mm-hmm. And so dealing with her is at times frustrating and mentally challenging and straining just because she asks a lot of the same questions over and over again. And, you know, over time that can get exasperating. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he was dealing with that by himself. And a year ago, we found out he had cancer a little over a year ago. And my feeling was him having stage four cancer. If he has the physical strain of that, plus the mental and emotional strain of dealing with my mother, by himself, I, that could be too much for him. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it was a no-brainer to bring him and my mom into our house 
Uh, it's been a pleasure. I, you know, I've often thought in the past about how years ago it was much more common for as people grew older, they were probably more likely to be around their children and grandchildren and maybe even great grandchildren for us for a time uh, because people weren't as, you know, going all over the country and moving and following jobs and things like that as much as they are today. And so um, I've thought like, man, it would, it would really be nice if, as you grow older, if you are around your family. Mm-hmm. And so um, now they were in Ohio, Cleveland. I live in New Jersey. My brother lives in Detroit. And so they were by themselves. And so bringing them here has really, I can see my father is stronger, not only physically, but in other ways. My mother uh, is in better spirits because um, she has more interaction with me and my wife and my daughters when they come over and we're taking them out, we're doing things. And so um, it's been a blessing. It's not just, we got to watch them, you know, it's our responsibility. It's actually been, um Good. They're, you know, they're still independent enough where my wife and I can go out for dinner or movie or whatever it might be uh, when we want to. Um, my dad, I, I take the train into New York City to go to work. He drives me in or at least to the train every day, every morning, picks me up when I land, you know, arrive back from New York. And um, so that's giving him a sense of purpose as well. We There's other things they can do around the house. And so, um, so yeah, it's been good, man. Um, and my thing is, look, all that they did for me, <laughs> I wouldn't be where I'm at. There's no doubt, you know, no matter how smart I think I might be or whatever, there's no way I'd be where I'm at if it weren't for sacrifices they made and the things they did for me as, when I was younger. And so it's not a burden or hassle at all. It's uh, it's something I should do. Mm-hmm. It's and, just and giving glad me, to do. yeah. It's just kind of giving me this other element of this work <clears throat> as it relates to fatherlessness. You know that when you are absent in the life of your child, that that's not the only life that you're absent in, um, and that your value as a man, um, uh is even more valuable, you know, being not only present for your children, but being present for your family, right? Not right. only for your family, but for yourself. Like that's just this extended thing that we don't talk enough about when we talk to fathers about being responsible. We kind of only narrowly talk to them about the responsibility that they have for their children, but we don't really have a lot of dialogue about being in position to be available for your family, particularly your own parents. I was, um, I had the um, pleasure of interviewing Malik Yoba about a month or so ago, and he's writing a book now, and he asked me to write the forward for his book. And so um, as I wrote the forward for his book, it inspired me to kind of think about this whole notion of what I describe as echoes of your father. And so, what brought him to writing his book is his manager um, said to him one day, um, knowing his relationship with his father said, do you know that you often quote your dad? Do you realize that when you're talking, you quote your dad a lot? And he said, nah, I never even paid it any attention. And then he started paying attention to how many times he, his father comes out of him either in action or in voice throughout the day. And right. so, I was telling him that that inspired me to start looking at writing this book called Echoes of Your Father and how the presence of your father echoes in your life in areas that you don't think about. When you think about your own dad, where are the spaces um, in your relationship that you can put a finger on and say that this is an area of my life that he is truly inspired? Wow. Um I mean, he's inspired every area, to be honest, but I would say on a very superficial level, um, I call my wife Bay. 
hey, babe, what you, you know, what you doing? Or, babe, you know, just that's what I call her. And I never decided, you know, that's what I want to nickname my wife. But that's what my father called my mother mm. and or calls her still. And so it just I don't even know when I started calling her back, you know, but I do, you know, or I used to really always have a toothpick in my mouth because mm. I grew up seeing my dad with a toothpick in his mouth after dinner and stuff. So certainly things like that, um, I think a respect for authority um and taking care of your family responsibilities my my father was very authoritative um he was definitely the head of the household and um that taught he taught me to respect his authority <laughs> and uh, that transferred to authority outside of the house and so um you know that is something he certainly uh impacted me with and I think a lot of things you just pick up uh, from osmosis, you mm -hmm. know, um, just from being around your dad. He didn't always sit me down and teach me this is how you do this. This is how you do that. These are your responsibilities. That's a good thing. I, it's it's something that is good to do, but he just didn't really do that with me very often. But I just pick things up from him from living with him. And from interacting with him, he coached me in our, every sport I played, baseball, basketball, and football. Um, he helped me with my homework. Like I'm, I was an English major. Obviously, before I became full-time broadcasting, I was a writer. I started my career as a writer. And my dad used to help me with my writing, you know, with uh, diagramming sentences I don't know if the young people even do that anymore, but we used to diagram sentences in school and, you know, just he'd look over my essays and and just help me with my grammar and things like that. Academically, uh, there was no doubt I was going to be a good student because I didn't have a choice. You know, um, if I wanted to play sports, which I did um, and I played all throughout my youth and high school and even in the college. I had to take care of the grades first. Um, most young people are not going to study or read if they're not made to, if they don't have to. Now, there are some young geniuses out there. There are a handful of young kids that will just motivate themselves and do it themselves. But most of us, particularly boys, and particularly in today's society where there are so many distractions, where there you can, I can, if nobody is watching me or nobody tells me or makes me do my homework or study for my test, I'm probably more likely to get on social media and be texting or posting or seeing what's out there or on my phone talking with friends or watching a movie, or watching a sporting event, or, I mean, there's so many distractions, it's unbelievable. And so I believe parents need to, like, you have to study. It's just, it's not your choice. If you're going to live in this house where you get fed, where you get clothed, where you get taken care of, then you're going to live by our rules. Mm -hmm. And the rules are you have to study <laughs> and do your best in school because in American society, the way you get ahead is education. Barring that you are just some super 0.1 of 1% super athlete or super musician or singer or whatever. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's an area he impacted me. That's, you know, the, the approach I took with my daughters. And obviously they they did very well academically. Um, and so there's so many ways uh, that he just impacted everything, really. My life, uh, you know, he impacted every area of my life. And all of those things are what I describe as echoes. It just echoes. They're just him echoing in your life and those echoes showing up in your life in some way.
And I think that those echoes happen, whether you have a negative relationship or a positive relationship. Um, those echoes that come back at you um, come back because they have either been um, cultivated, intentionally made and given to you, or they don't exist. And so the hole in your heart that yearns for your father reverber reverberates um, emptiness and that stuff echoes back into your life. That's what I mean by echoes of, of your father. Since I've known you, you've had a heart um, for men and you've always expressed specifically a heart for men um, and more specifically black men. Um, what has been the, um, the driver for you really paying attention in your life? And I'm going to call it your ministry. We're going to talk about King in a minute. Before Chris, like, what is it in you that really makes you yearn for the betterment of particularly men, but more specifically black men? Yeah, I think the first thing, and this would be another echo from my father, was that my dad was very pro-black. Mm -hmm. And I, he wasn't pro-black in terms of knowing a lot of black or African history. Um or being so necessarily militant, but, you know, he did march into civil rights marches. He, he and my mom went to an HBCU, uh, Xavier University in New Orleans. That's where they met. Uh, obviously Xavier was somewhat a part of our life uh, growing up because they were alumni. We used to meet in Cincinnati when I when was a young boy living in Cincinnati there, they would have alumni events all the time. And, so all, all the other families, their kids, we were good friends with them. All my aunts, so I have two aunts uh, on both sides, both of my parents' sides, and I have uh, two uncles, and they all went to Xavier. <laughs> and my grandparents, uh, my mother's parents, went to Southern University, another HBCU in Baton Rouge. And my father's parents didn't go to college. But, um, but he was very pro-Black. I knew all of that stuff. So that probably seeped into me as well. But um, just in terms of, you know, really being proud to be black, um, telling me stories about him growing up, even in the army, he's light skinned like me, except he lost his hair when he was, you know, he, he went bald at a fairly young age in his early 20s. And um, so he probably be, you know, people, one way people identify me as African-American is my hair, you know? <laughs> and so um, he would be in the army around some white guys and getting fights because they start talking about, you know, blacks in derogatory terms or saying the N word, not knowing he was black. Uh, so he talked about that and you know, just uh, in my household, as, as I'm sure many African-American households, uh, we always rooted for the team with the black quarterback or the <laughs> black coach or, you know, I lived in Indianapolis, Indiana, because we did move around quite a bit. Um, when Larry Bird and Magic Johnson met in that historic 1979 NCAA championship game. So I'm in Indiana where Larry Bird played for Indiana State. And my me and my family were all rooting for Michigan State because of Magic mm -hmm. Johnson and, you know, and, and Greg Kelser and all those guys. So just that was constant um, music, black music, um, my dad singing and, and dancing and things like that. Um, brothers, you know, we I mean. You know, it, no, there's no black family that I know of that some some of the people don't use the N word, you know, but, but so we we obviously heard that. But for the most part, it was brothers, you know, everybody was a brother, the, you know, black men. It was brothers, you know, how many brothers they got, or who, you know, like so all of that really uh, just like you said, that was an echo of my family and my father. And so that certainly created in me a, a very much a, a pride in being black, um, which I, which unfortunately and, and to be honest, disappoints me. And I do think a significant number of black people don't have that. 
I mm. think a lot of our people have internalized uh, racial, um, have internalized white supremacy mm-hmm. and have internalized like a, almost like a, 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 like not almost like a racial self-hatred. Um, they may not even feel it individually. They might have self-esteem individually, but as a whole, just feeling, you know, we got a lot of negative feelings about being black, unfortunately. Um, it's somewhat understandable when you look at our history, but it's certainly something we have to get rid of because we'll never be as great as we can be and what God created us to be as long as we feel like we're inferior or second rate or something like that. So, um, he always instilled in me that pride in being black. I never felt uh, an inferiority complex to whites or any other race. I was, as we moved around, at times we lived in mostly white neighborhoods. And um, I was the only, my brother and I were the only black kids in uh, my Catholic high school or Catholic school when I graduated from junior high in eighth grade. And I was the valedictorian of the class, you know, the only black kid there. And I was the valedictorian. Um, I always made the honor roll in high school every quarter, you know. Um, So that in and of itself was dispelling some stereotypes that whites may have had about African-Americans. But um, so I think there there, that was certainly uh, one of the things that led to me being pro-black myself. And then as far as men, you know, I think, and you'll be able to relate to this. I never heard the word that I remember hearing the word mentor until I was like in college. Right. Because I grew up in the seventies and eighties and Black men, and this is shocking to a lot of younger Black people who think either growing up now, they think Black fathers just generally aren't there, right? Because now it's 75% roughly of Black children growing up without, you know, their father. Not He may be in their life, but in the home. Um, And then... Uh, some think it's a remnant of slavery, you know, because the black family was broken up purposely. And obviously that was true. Um, but we did resurrect the black family, you know, mm-hmm. and from 1880, when we got out of slavery in 1860s, from 1880 to 1960, 80% of black children were born into a home with a father, you know? And so when I was growing up in the seventies and eighties, I mean, almost all of the black families we knew, and I'm talking about, and I, I grew up middle-class, but I'm talking about dozens of black families, not a couple, mm-hmm. dozens the father was there. I mentioned the Xavier alumni that, you know, we would be a part of. All of them were couples, father and mother and children. Um, That was in Cincinnati. I lived in a majority, predominantly black neighborhood, College Hill. And all, most of my, I'm trying to think of all our friends Every, every you know on the block it was mostly black everybody's father was there there was one young guy that was living with his grandparents but outside of that everybody's fathers were there and they were active i mean they we on the street playing football and the dads are you know throwing the football we playing baseball or we we're playing pickle you know when they throwing mm-hmm. it to us in the backyard or you know, going to play when my dad would play ball on Saturday mornings with a bunch of brothers and, you know, we go with them and their dads, I mean, their boys were there and we hanging out with them. Like it was just common. It was like seeing grass in your front yard, you know, mm-hmm. it would think like dads, black dads, not dad, black dads. It was all I knew, you know, in Indianapolis, uh, same thing, you know, 
men that picked me up and took me and their children to school. Mm-hmm. Jerry Harkness actually was his name. He was on that Loyola Mary Loyola Chicago team that won the NCAA championship. I want to say 1961. Mm-hmm. I think that was the year. Uh, they were the first team to start four brothers, you know, and then the next year, I think, I think it was the next year, Texas Western started five, you know, and mm-hmm. won the championship. So coaches my coaches in baseball little league this is when brothers you know african-americans were more into baseball coaches were black right. like you know i mean it, it just and and so when i got to college and i'm a member of kappa alpha Psi fraternity and my father was a kappa and he started through the frat mentoring you know they had a mentoring program and he mentored a young man um and that was really my first kind of interaction with the concept of mentoring because again growing up we dudes had we had their fathers so it wasn't i didn't need a mentor you know i might you yeah perhaps in a specific you know career path or something but as far as raising me up and teaching me how to be a man it was my dad and so um as i got older though college you know you some more cats in college didn't have their dads um, than, that I had. Grew, although it was still set, like my basketball team was uh, 80, 80, 80% black. Mm-hmm. Um, I think most of the dudes had their dads, you know, in their homes. Um, but I still overall, you're meeting more that didn't. And then, you know, this is when it's really beginning, like, like I said, 1980, 1960, it was 80% of black fathers in the household. By 1980, it was down to 60%. Mm-hmm. So that's still the majority. I graduated high school in 86, college in 90. So this is when, like when I'm coming out of school, this is when it's really, you know, the black family in terms of a nuclear family is really beginning to fall apart. Mm-hmm. You know, and so- that was the- that was the whole, you know, the whole gist of the Monaghan report, you know, right. really right. Began speaking to how particularly the black family was breaking down as a result of what was happening to black men. Um, right. And we crack epidemic, mass mm-hmm. incarceration, the war on drugs, all of that was destroying the black family. And, you know, so that was. I was beginning to see, um, you know, that there weren't a lot of dudes were growing up without men in their lives. Mm -hmm. And so the things I took for granted as a kid, I was like, man, these are important. If we're going to really, you know, be strong as a people, we have to strengthen our our men. And Mm -hmm. so that was that's a big part of why I have such a desire to help men um you know be the men that god created them to be Mm -hmm. so so let's transition that conversation into the fact that you and i you know are men of god we are christian men um and you created the king movement um which stands for knowledge inspiration and nurture through god talk a little bit about what inspired you to create king and then talk to me a little bit about the purpose and what you're trying to accomplish with King. Yeah, I think there are a couple of things that led me that were the impetus for King. Uh, really, when I became a Christian, it was my senior year in college. I grew up going to church, Catholic church and all that, but didn't really come into a personal relationship with God or saving faith in Jesus Christ until I was a senior in college. I was actually 21 years old. And um, so when I got out of school and I'm working, I didn't really know a lot of young brothers that were my age um, that I could relate to that were really trying to follow God. Uh, I knew dudes that went to church, but as far as really trying to gear your lifestyle in a Christ-like manner, I didn't know a lot. And I longed for that, you know, because I think all of us as men, we need male bonding, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's, I mean, a gang, uh, a lodge, a fraternity, all of those are forms of male bonding. I think females need female bonding. 
and um, even uh, sports. I mean, my some of my fondest memories from team sports were the, on the bus, you know, mm-hmm. in the locker room, you know, joking around with cats on the mm-hmm. field or, you know, during practice or whatever, mm-hmm. and that male bonding. And so I long for that in a Christian uh, context. And so, you know, dudes I could relate to in terms of hip hop, in terms of culture, in terms of, you know, sports or whatever, but who also would encourage me in my walk with the Lord. And um, we're going to encourage me to stay strong and follow Christ rather than to go out and do something that was against his will. And so um, I also, as I long for that, as I began to meet young, I was in Cleveland, Ohio at the time covering high school sports. And as I began to meet more and more brothers that were my age, that that were Christians, I, I saw that a lot of them, their walks were like a roller coaster. Mm. You know, they might be strong for six months, then out for three months, then strong for a year, then out for a year. Like, and depending on, because I was meeting all types of guys, and depending on what your your backstory was or your testimony, you know, one of those down periods. I mean, I knew dudes that got, were had gotten become Christians, gotten saved in prison, uh, had been drug dealers or whatever. And when they went through one of those down periods, it was they were getting involved in the type of stuff that would land them back in jail, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I said, I mean, I felt like one of the reasons there were others, but one of the reasons that dudes struggled in staying strong, just solid, was that they didn't have that brotherhood. You know, they didn't they didn't have men they could relate to a group of men that were fighting the same battle, um, fighting the good fight of faith. Right. Um and that they could relate to in other ways. Mm-hmm. So when you went and hung out, you were hanging out with, with your old boys who weren't saved. And I'm not against, obviously we all have friends who aren't Christians, but if that's all you have, mm-hmm. and every time you hang out, every time you watch the game, every time you go here or there, or you're constantly around guys that aren't saved and Christians and doing things that, you know, we, we're not trying to do as men of God that can either make you miserable mm. or it can lead you to, you know, fall. And that's <laughs> what was happening. And so uh, I said, you know what, if we created a brotherhood where guys had a group that they could hang with, that was, would encourage them in the Lord. And, and a lot of times not even, not just having a Bible study, not going to church, but watching the game. Mm-hmm. Going to kick it, hang out, but but dudes that are gonna, you know, the conversation and everything is gonna be more in line with your beliefs and principles and morals. Uh, I felt like if we could create something like that, then that would help a lot of men stay strong. And so mm-hmm. those are things that led me to want to start something like the King Movement. And I started something on a local level when I was in Cleveland. And then when I that was when I was covering high school sports. And then when I began, and we also did ministry too. We had dudes that rapped. Mm -hmm. Uh, We went to the projects. We were evangelizing. We went to prisons. I went to a juvenile detention center every week for like three years straight and and ministered to the young brothers. They just send me in the pod, the quad, and I'm in there with about 40, 50 cats and just Mm -hmm. talking to them about the Lord and how he can change their life and all that. Um, and the other brothers from the group would join me and stuff. And then when I started, when I got promoted to covering the NBA, uh, and then I got married around the same time, I didn't have time to do any of that type of ministry. And, and, and so that group kind of fell apart. And when I eventually moved to New Jersey, started working at the New York times and, uh, my career was starting to blossom. Uh, and I just didn't have the time really to do that type of men's ministry, but I still had that desire to do it. It's like Jeremiah mm-hmm. said, it was like fire shut up in my bones. So <laughs> over time, the Lord showed me ways I could do it. 
and how to get King going. I met some brothers that start sharing it with them and they were interested. And so we started it roughly 10 years ago. Um, now we have chapters throughout the country, about 20 chapters throughout the country. We have a national men's conference every year. This will be our eighth one in March of 2023. It's in Philadelphia. We've done Atlanta. We've done Memphis. We've done Charlotte. We've been in Ohio. And um, we've done events at Morehouse College, uh, Florida Memorial University, HBCU in Miami. Uh, so we've we've done a lot of different things and built up a lot of brothers. We have hundreds of members now. And so, um, again, in keeping with the notion of trying to build up and strengthen the Black community and really raise our quality of life in the Black community, we feel like building up men into being the men God's created us to be, being the husbands, the fathers, the leaders he's created us to be is absolutely imperative. Mm-hmm. And so um, so that's what we're doing. I, I mean, I'm honest, honestly, Ken, like, obviously there are other ways, things we need to be doing politically and academically and, and all these other ways. But if we don't strengthen the Black family, mm-hmm. if we don't strengthen Black men, mm-hmm. and we don't begin having married families, couples and families again, we're fooling ourselves if we think we're going to really progress because mm-hmm. we're not. Because mm-hmm. as you know, boys need, and daughters, boys and girls, not just boys, boys and girls need their fathers and they need their mothers. Absolutely. That's biological. That's uh, historical. And it's religious in every throughout every society in human history. That's been the case. Yeah. And one of the so, things that I love, you know, about the whole notion of the King movement and watching you from his infancy and watching and seeing where it's going is that brotherhood, right? That dudes just want to be around other dudes that are like-minded you know, and they don't all have to think the same. They don't all have to believe the same. They don't all have to be engaged the same, but as long as they can find a safe haven in the mix of other men that allows them to be their authentic selves, right? Um, This is a great thing. You know, one of the things that, I don't know, a couple of months now ago, um, so we're beginning to lose some of our more historical um, legacy pastors, black pastors in particular. Um, T.D. Jakes, just not too long ago, is now transitioning the Potter's House to Sarah Jakes. Um, he's beginning to sunset out of that position to do other things in the ministry. Uh, we just lost, not too long ago, um, Dr. Calvin Butts from Abyssinian Baptist Church in New York. Um, I believe uh, Creflo is trying to figure out how to ease out and bring his belief, his son into the space. Um, Dr. Frederick K. Price, many people remember him from Crenshaw, you know, on Sunday morning, his son is beginning to take over for him. And so a lot of that historical um, uh, manhood that was a part of the church from that traditional space is beginning to diminish and we're looking for those younger generational voices that's going to carry these young men of faith, you know, through. Um, in King, have you paid attention to um, the generational aspects of the men that's coming into the King and whether or not they're older, more traditional, they're Generation Z, they're millennials, like have their thought, have their thoughts about Christianity and faith differed from what our parents thought about faith? Well, I think that um, what we're facing is this may be, and there, I, this next generation will probably be the first generation of African-Americans that's not majority churched, mm. right? When you and I grew up, everybody most people went to church. Mm -hmm. And even if they like, they might not have been 
saved or really living for the Lord, they might've been out doing all types of stuff, but they had somebody from their youth, a grandma, a mother, a father, an aunt, somebody was dragging them to church, telling them about Jesus. Right. Right. And, (laughs) And that was great. That was important because even if a lot of young men went the wrong way or got wayward, it was the prayers of that mother or grandmother or aunt or somebody that maybe kept them alive. Maybe those prayers got them in the jail rather than the grave. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, and then that gave them time. Eventually they came around or something like that. Um, so I, but I don't think with this generation, I don't think as many, um, you know, they're just keeping it real. We're, we're kind of following in the ways of secular white society. Mm. And so as we, we get more money, more education, um, we're just kind of leaving, in my opinion, all society certainly is moving away from God. European society, which America is largely based on, is even further away than we are. And so um, a lot of our people in the name of progress or whatever, they're leaving God as well. We're not quite as far gone, I don't think, as mainstream society by any stretch. But I also think we're not standing up for God the way we should be either. Because when we do get in the public space, even as we may be strong believers, we tend to leave the principles and morals of our faith behind um, to fit in or whatever. Um, And so I think that's a mistake. I think actually um, us, you know, standing up for God and representing God would not would not only be good for society, but it will be better for us as a people, because I think that would help society become more godly and that would and treat us like we deserve to be treated and accept us as we deserve to be accepted. So um, I think that's a difference. Um, I also think that now, I mean, look, every gender, there's always, we're talking, you and I are Christians. Um, there have always been, there's always for, you know, the last hundred or so years or more been this kind of myth or notion that Christianity is a white man's religion. And it would, it would show itself in the nation of Islam or in, you know, the more science temple or, you know, now it's more like uh, somewhat, somewhat the black Hebrews, uh, comedic science. So you have those challenges, which are easy to dismiss when you really understand the black presence, presence of black people in the Bible, um, the his Christianity in Africa mm-hmm. from the earliest times onward. Uh, when you understand all that, and know the history, it's not hard to dismiss some of these false notions that, that keep a lot of black men from the gospel. But uh, I, I think the main thing is that, like I said, this ge- younger generation is not um, as churched as the, our generations and the older ones. And also, we also find, too, that a lot of our younger men, and it's good that we have men of of different generations, because they need the younger men, a lot of them, you know, they're following the Lord, they want to get married, but they may have grown up in a situation where they didn't see uh, a marriage. Right. So they need to be taught uh, about being a father, being a husband, and even just experiences. Like, a lot of the times, I think, People that aren't that didn't grow up with a father and a mother in the home, sometimes they may have. I feel felt this way about my wife at times earlier in our marriage. Um, she her her father and mother got divorced when she was like three years old, so she never lived with a a man and wife together. And I feel like she had an idealized view of marriage. Mm. So anytime you had an argument or disagreement or a down period or whatever, 
it was like, do we still love each other? Or does he love me? Or, you know, are we getting divorced and things like that? Whereas me growing up, seeing a married couple, they, my parents now have been married for 57 uh, years. Mm-hmm. Um, seeing that, seeing them have arguments, you know, and disagreements and things like that taught me that's a part of marriage. When you have an right. argument, it don't mean you don't love each other. Don't mm-hmm. mean you, you get divorced or not, you know, it's mm-hmm. just a part of marriage. Like I grew up with my brother and we fought a lot. Didn't mean <laughs> we didn't love each other and have each other's back. It was just, that's how it was and how it is a lot of times. Mm-hmm. And so um, that was even raising my daughters when they got in arguments. I mean, I, I wouldn't just sit there and let them argue. I'd stop it and have them talk it out. But I knew that that's not a big deal. That's what siblings do sometimes. So I think that having the older generation need to teach the younger generation how to be husbands and fathers and just talk to them about some of the experiences of marriage. We shouldn't just assume, like, which I think we can a lot of times in the church, oh, he saved, she saved, they're going to be all right. You still have to teach them practical things, you know? Just like because mm-hmm. I'm saved, you saved, don't mean I'm necessarily qualified for this job. I still need to develop the skills to work this type of job. And we still we need to be taught the practical things and skills and understandings to have a successful marriage. Right. So the eighth annual King Summit Let Us Make Man takes place March 9th through the 11th in Philadelphia. Why should um men want to be there and what will they get out of the experience man um ken this is going to be an awesome summit i think it's going to be our best one yet um i think we'll have the highest turnout we usually have several hundred men i think we'll get over a thousand if not more than that um but we're gonna have we the the theme of it is let us make man um, because again, in this day and age, you know, a lot of it's, it can be confusing growing up today. I mean, I think in the most pristine situations as you, you work your way through puberty and all that, it's, it can be a confusing time for men. But nowadays when you're getting all types of messages from society about manhood and things like this, it can be incredibly confusing. So we feel like it, we need to talk about biblical manhood and what God created men to be like and be and how we can get there. And so that's why we called it Let Us Make Man. We're going to have great speakers. We got Pastor Eric Mason, who's going to speak about the it's for all men, King and our summits and everything are for all men. But we do deal unashamedly with issues that are directly related to the black community because mm-hmm. our experience here historically and even today is different from any other group in the country. And so uh, one of those things is many of our black men are on a search for identity uh, in terms of history, in terms of race and things like that. Not just what's it like to be a man, what's it like to be a black man? What's it mean Mm -hmm. to be a black man? And so Pastor Eric Mason in Philadelphia, uh, Epiphany Fellowship, he's going to address that. Um, pastor, it's at Enon Tabernacle, which is the biggest Baptist. It's either the biggest Black Baptist church in Philadelphia or the biggest Baptist church, period, in Philadelphia. But it's a huge congregation. Uh, Reverend Dr. Alan Waller, he's going to speak about men and boys. Um, I'm going to speak about a new image for our men. You know, we've been given an image of boy being boy. Like America has wanted to make black men boys, Mm -hmm. keep us in a state of perpetual adolescence so that we would never rise up and challenge the oppression that we've faced. Um, or, Or even in this day and age, be quote unquote competition in the workplace or in society. And so um, that's why even years ago, you might have been a doctor. You might have been a college graduate. You might have been a respected man in the church, but you were referred to by white society as boy. 
you know, and you couldn't look a white man. And I, all of that was to make us feel inferior and like we're boys and not men. And we do have some arrested development in our community where we have 40 and 50 year old cats that really don't almost act like 16 year olds, 17 mm. year olds. It's the same mentality. And so we we want to we need to come out of that image that was created, given to us by those who were against us, who are enemies and accept the image that God has given us. And I'll even do this through address talking about black men in the Bible and what they were like. And those are the images we need to build on and follow rather than this image that white America, racist white America gave us and that many of us still walk in. Um, We're going to have Jason Avant, who was a former NFL wide receiver, speak at our basketball tournament. Um, We have a citywide basketball tournament. We're going to have Brian Dawkins, the Hall of Fame defensive back for the Philadelphia Eagles. He's going to speak. Um, We're going to have workshops. We don't just give messages, but we also have workshops. We're going to address one on urban apologetics. Well, we will address things like the notion that all African-Americans are descendants of the biblical Hebrews. Is that true or false or whatever? We'll address that. We'll address the, the myth the wrong, the erroneous myth that Christianity is the white man's religion. We will, uh, we will have workshops on uh, finances, how to handle your finances and improve in that area, uh, sex and sexuality, um, career development, being a father, how to be a father, practical ways on how to be a father and a husband, finding your purpose in life. Like all of these things will address We'll have fun. Like I say, a basketball, we'll have praise and worship, prayer. Um, it's just a great, great time together. And like I said earlier, as I was talking about the King movement in general, it's just awesome to be around hundreds and again, maybe thousands of black men who are first and foremost seeking the Lord and serving the Lord, but walking in you know, positivity. Mm-hmm. And I hate, I kind of hate to put it that way, but I've had so many men tell me that they, and I, this wasn't my experience growing up, but I've had so many brothers tell me they had never been in an environment with so many black men mm-hmm. where they, that were all search, searching, you know, for the positive path that were all encouraging you to do the right thing and living in that, you know, whereas a lot of times when we gather, obviously sports or a party, but a lot of times we gather, you know, we just chasing women or we just, you know, you know, doing something else, getting drunk, you know, they, they were like, man, this is, this is incredibly empowering and inspiring to be around this many brothers who are like, encouraging you to be faithful to your wife who are mm. encouraging you to you know how to raise your children and the right thing the positive thing encouraging you not to you know uh smoke the weed you know <laughs> and get, get drunk and i mean so yeah man so it's you know the bible says don't forsake the fellowship of other believers part of that is because it knew god knew is as we're in environments that aren't seeking to serve God mm-hmm. and around people that aren't necessarily in that, that lane. We need each other. Just like a black, black people being minorities in this country and society, we need to come together sometimes and just, man, it's great to be around some brothers and sisters, you know, because mm-hmm. we have similar experiences and all that. Same thing with Christians and Christian men. And so that's kind of what, the uh, we'll even have hip hop, man. We're gonna have some rappers there, and all that stuff. So it'll, it's gonna be awesome, man. It really is. Nice, nice. So how do people um, register um, for the for the summit? You can register at King Movement. Well, let me see. Our website is kingmovement.com. But so you may be able to register on there, but you can definitely register at kingsummit.com. 
kingsummit.org. Let me make sure, just give me one second. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, here it is. Yeah, I'll make sure King that Summit, kingsummit.org, .org, uh, March 9th, which is a Thursday. That's when the basketball tournament starts. Uh, through Saturday, March 11th, we'll stay Sunday and go to church March 12th at Enon Tabernacle Baptist Church. Um, but yeah, brothers can register at kingsummit.org. There'll be transportation from the hotel to the church. We do have a hotel, uh, a summit hotel, if you will. Uh, so yeah, man, you can go register now, kingsummit.org. And and you, Ken, and, and other brothers are going to work with teenagers, teenage boys, and uh, teach them how to be brothers, fathers, and men. Mm -hmm. uh, nope. Brotherhood, fatherhood, manhood. And so... I, I know, and you know better than me, but it feels like like this fatherhood space. Mm -hmm. When I graduated from college and 20 years ago, even it seemed like it was it was so important to everybody. Mm -hmm. We gotta, we gotta, you know, strengthen fathers and get fathers back in the homes. And and now it feels to me like that emphasis is not there no it's not like it used to be yeah and no, that's disappointing because again where are we going like where are we going without strong fathers and even if you even the push if you don't you know need fathers in the home like some push pushes are assuming men are not going to raise their children mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know and mm -hmm. so um it's just yeah it, it we got the band together and really get this thing Clicking not all mostly for in our case black men, but it's a you know fifty percent of children in America period now mm -hmm. are mm -hmm. born without fathers in the home. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so you know it's a it's uh, yeah that's, that's a whole nother podcast. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right. Talking about the state of responsible fatherhood now because I'm in that mix each and every day. Part of it is you know that the um. It's expanding in terms of think people who are getting involved in responsible fatherhood. So it's not just um, fatherhood people anymore. You know, now is Head Start. Now it's early, early Head Start. Now it's SAMHSA. Now it's um, re, uh, reentry. Now it's housing. Now it's you know Tana. Everybody that sounds like that could be good. Is that good? That yeah, like it is good. It is good. But the the challenge is the soldiers that we need to be in, be able to go in those spaces, articulate what the issue is, drive policy, um, train individuals to help them kind of understand what this work is, the essentialness of that. Um, there's not enough of us out there that do that on that level, right? And so there's a lot of guys who are out there, you know, you know, doing fatherhood stuff in their garage and in their basement and they're getting into conferences and they're have, they're talking about, like, I cringe every time I step into a fatherhood workshop with someone oh, that wow. I haven't seen and heard before because you just never know what's going to come out of their mouths. <laughs> um, and so that's a challenge. And part of it is that there's no infrastructure to the industry itself. Like, it has not become part of the social work context and right. until things become um until the industry becomes credentialized right where people have to go through social work school to do certain things in the space right. um they have to be credentialized by credentializing agencies that make sure and ensure you know that individuals are doing x y and z and that there's some at least some educational level or experience level that allows people to kind of talk about this space um right now there's no guardrails around any of that and anybody who is a father can get on a facebook page or an instagram page right. and say i'm a fatherhood advocate and because people just don't know you know about the industry they follow them and the next thing you know you know you got all kinds of information out there so uh, right. that's why i'm still deep in it and I'm not moving you know until I'm trying to scale and expand and do more and get in those spaces and we're doing a great job at doing it but it's not enough of me 
out there um, right. to continue to move this work. But thank you so much, bro. There were so many other things I wanted to talk to you about. You know, we're at our 55 minutes. Um, I got to bring you back because there's several. I want to talk about the black men in the Bible thing solely at some point. Um, I really want to talk about, you know, the uh, power of the black male voice in sports um, and what's that doing to our community and our children and how we're articulating that um, in the space. Um, talk about, you know, the historical context of people like Bill Russell and 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 um, Jim Brown and Muhammad Ali and Arthur Ashe and Lou Alcinda and talk about what they meant to the culture back then and how that has either translated or not translated to the younger um, African-American males out there and how a lot of conversation now is getting twisted up in a whole bunch of other different things. And it's because folks aren't articulating their, their um, argument in a way that allows them to construct logical conversations right. that everything gets twisted up and it be, and the argument becomes about everything other than the conversation. That's what happens. That's what's happening right now. Yep, yep. And so, you know, I want to bring you on and have some more conversations about um, those things. And I will be there in March. I'll have my podcast stuff with me. So I might have to set up right. a table and do a, have a couple of folks come through and just kind of talk about some subject matter so we could pull up right. some content and keep that Absolutely. stuff. Moving. Thank you, brother. I love you. And ain't love nothing you, you can brother. do about it. I hate, I love that you guys moved three, but I hate that you guys moved three because I, I don't, you ain't my, in the morning, you my, <laughs> uh, you my coffee in the morning. And now you yeah. going at three o'clock. I'm moving boys back and forth and I'm doing yeah. life at three o'clock. It is, summer. you know, it's been a great move overall, especially, I mean, for me, I get to sleep in in the morning, which is great. <laughs> But I have heard from so many people, um, even including a lot of people in the league around the NBA, because, you know, they're up early and they checking us out to start their day. But at three o'clock, people are in the midst of their day. Uh, wow. So I get it. But um, but still, I, I'd rather be at three because I can get some sleep. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, brother. Strong in the Lord, man. I'll see you in March. Absolutely. Take care. God bless. Thank you so much for taking the time to spend with us. You've been listening to I Am Dad Podcast. We hope that you have been informed, encouraged you to think, or even inspired your heart for the love of dads. The conversation does not end here. Come back and join us next week. Same time, same place. Or you can continue the dialogue on our I Am Dad Facebook page. We also invite you to listen to past episodes, learn more about us, and keep up with special activities by visiting IamDadPodcast.com. That's IamDadPodcast.com. Until next time. I leave you with this reminder of manhood from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Because of this reminder, I will always understand that I am dad, period. period.